Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello, and welcome to The Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. If you'd like to find out more and think you'd like to subscribe, take a look at the website at strong-words.co.uk. Don't forget the hyphen. This is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days writing the history of ballet or multi-volume family sagas set in the heart of Africa, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. But today my guest is a journalist and author whose latest book called A Furious Devotion is a biography of the singer, songwriter and legendary hellraiser Shane McGowan. Now writing this book meant spending a lot of time in McGowan's orbit and getting used to his idiosyncratic approach to such things as timekeeping and polite conversation. And even when staying at the singer's Dublin flat, he would sometimes get up in the morning to find McGowan still in front of the television, having yet to make it to bed. He quotes producer Steve Lillywhite as describing McGowan as one of the only two true bohemians he has ever known, the other being Keith Richard. If they wake up at seven in the morning, he says, it's purely coincidence. Now, in this terrific book, you very soon get the sense that this is a person with a truly idiosyncratic and unpredictable approach to life. So here to talk about his five rules of writing about difficult individuals, I'd like to welcome Richard Balls. Richard, hello. How are you today? Hi, Ed. Now, what prompted you to take on such a challenging biography? I asked myself that several times uh, during the uh, the course of researching and writing about Shane. Um, I mean, essentially, I was a fan. So I I saw the Pogues. I stumbled on them, actually, in 1984 when they were supporting Elvis Costello and the Attractions. And that was at the UEA in Norwich and loved the band. Uh, So, you know, I I was I feel quite privileged to have actually seen them at a very early stage in their in their career to see Shane in that in that sort of um, uh, incarnation of the band, that very first run at it, really. Um, Then I interviewed him for the book I did about Stiff Records, and that involved, you know, spending quite a few hours with him in London at a bistro. Uh, Very, very interesting. I found him fascinating character very different to uh, in in some ways to how i had expected because as you said in your introduction he has this kind of hell raising image uh but he's actually quite a quiet uh man um man of very few words and um you know getting information out of him uh, has to be done very very uh, delicately mm-hmm. um he he also uh, I mean even just during the short uh, period that um, I spent with him uh, to talk about stiff records he managed to lock himself in a, in the toilet of the bistro and um, you know we had to go and get staff to get the master key to get him out and all the rest of it so you know that that wasn't even that wasn't without incident um, <clears throat> so then some years later I. Uh, felt that uh you know that he would be a good subject for for my next book and um paul ronan who is one of shane's oldest friends 
who facilitated that meeting in London, started taking me to Dublin to his flat to, to actually spend time with him. And why why did he decide that he was ready to have a biography written about him? It's often it's a it's a quite a difficult thing for a lot of people, isn't it? I mean, the, you get your sort of egomaniacs who can't wait to be written about, but even they, when they see themselves on paper, tend to have a rather um, uncomfortable reaction. How did uh, how did what made Shane decide that he was ready to be written about? In a sense, I think the answer to that is I'm not actually sure that he did decide that he was ready for that. Um, Shane doesn't really kind of operate like that, um, and uh, that's not really how his mind works. I think it was because he was reassured by Paul, who was a very old friend, uh, and obviously Victoria would have would have um, you know sort of been involved in this as well. Uh, and wife, they, right? which sorry, which is Shane's wife, Victoria Clark. Uh, who was also incredibly helpful in the in the making of this book. So I think that they they felt that this was somebody that because I was going with Paul and I was spending time generally most of the time I wasn't on my own with Shane. I was with Paul or Joey Cashman, who's another of jo- uh, Shane's very old friends, uh, or the late Dave Lally. So <clears throat> there were other people around, and a lot of the conversations from which the inter- the interview material came were actually in conversations with with a group of people, you know, with two or three of us at at night. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Okay, well, uh, that that leads us perfectly to your first rule. Um, uh, Well, you say don't attempt to in uh, quotes, interview them. Shane hates being interviewed, especially about his work. Better to chat casually and record stuff when there is a window of opportunity. So why does he hate being interviewed about his work? He's actually a very shy, uh, quite reserved person. Uh, he's definitely not an egomaniac uh, who couldn't wait to have something written about him. Quite the, quite the opposite. Shane is, is quite modest, um, I mean, certainly over the years, there have been examples of kind of rock star behaviour, that kind of spoiled behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's there, there's no sort of massive ego at play uh, at all. I think he doesn't really like talking about his work. He finds I think he finds that just quite uncomfortable, really. Um, <clears throat> you know, when people have met him and say, "Oh, Shane, you know, I'm just I just want to say you're you're the I think you're the greatest." I think he finds that just very uncomfortable. Um, you know, he'd rather just have somebody pull up beside him and, and say, you know, what do you think of the hurling or something, you know, and, and have a drink with him. So I don't think he feels very comfortable about talking about his work particularly. He really hates that. Um, also, interviews generally for him over the years have meant being in a particular place at a given time. You have to meet this journalist at X time, at X venue. He doesn't like being told what to do at all so uh, over the years most if you look at a lot of Shane's interviews with the press they've always started with I was meant to interview Shane at eight o'clock at such and such in the event (laughs) it's something that really comes out of the book is that he is uh, unbelievably timetable phobic I mean have you have you ever met anybody who's kind of tougher to to pin down or or I mean about themselves less? definitely not I mean I, I, I read one quote from somebody who I think it was a documentary maker who who uh, who described writing about him or, or working with him as a, a sort of nature photography, like wildlife <laughs> photography, you know, that you can sort of spend three hours in the freezing cold waiting for a snow leopard 
uh, and, and and eventually you get three seconds of footage and then it's over. Yes. Um, it, it's it's literally you know the windows of opportunity are very slim. Um, I think the advantage I had was a I wasn't trying to interview him. I was sitting in his sitting room. He was watching television. No one was actually interrupting his. And that is quite a weird thing with Shane, for me at least. He watches television all day. It, it, he he has his his face to to the television twenty four hours a day, unless he's taken outside for some reason. And um, so you, you're never going to get his full attention because a lot of that proportion of that attention is given over to the television, which is also incidentally on at top volume. <laughs> and I I remember saying to Joey, I think it was, or Dave, you know, quietly. Do you think he would? Um, do you think Shane? Do you think we could turn the TV down? And they said to me, "If you ask to turn the TV down, he will turn it up louder." Well, this I suppose what I was going to ask you. You know, big, well, you explained this quite early on. Uh, you know, uh, in the book, the, the television absolutely blaring away. You very tentatively, nervously ask if you can turn it down, knowing that you could so easily break this very tenuous connection that you've got you know he's I think he was talking about something which he really wanted to get on tape but you know to ask to, to, to even touch the remote control was to f- flirt with being uh, asked to leave Ireland um you know, were, were you constantly on eggshells with him yeah. yeah definitely not because not because he's particularly irascible although although he can be um uh, but but yes, I was on eggshells because, as you 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 very brilliantly put, uh, it's it's a, it's a tenuous connection. And when you do get onto something that he wants to talk about, and you think, ah, oh, great, okay. So he one of the things I noticed was that, uh, he because he doesn't like talking about his work. He um, and I couldn't get much about Pogues tours and things like that from him for that mm-hmm. reason. But he seemed much more um, keen to talk about his childhood. You know, he loves telling stories about where he's the rebel, like, you know, shoving nettles down a fellow pupil's pants or something. You know, he loves telling stories like that or how he was in trouble with the police or how he went to court. Really happy to talk about all that stuff. And and I found that, you know, don't break that. As you said, don't break that connection. Once you once you've got got him going, let him let him keep going. A couple of times he did get really cross out of absolutely nowhere. And you think, oh. God, you know, just when I thought we were getting somewhere, suddenly it's broken. But actually, the thing with Shane is he he forgets about it almost instantly. So a few seconds go past and you think, that's it. The connection's broken. It's like snakes and ladders. You feel like you've almost got to 99 and then you've gone straight down a snake again, back to square one. And then he suddenly goes, oh, let me tell you some more stories. You know, and you think, oh. We're back. We're back to. We're, we're off again. Okay. Do was there was there anything that you'd kind of learnt in all your years of interviewing people that you were able to use to put him at ease? Well, it's really difficult to, to say because I think I was a journalist for for twenty years working in news and and covering a lot about crime, for example. So I, I have been in some you know some quite delicate situations over the years and and uh, and possibly dangerous situations. Um, so a lot of the time, I think you actually take these skills for granted. Um, you know, I don't sort of go around thinking, I've got these amazing interview skills. Right. But actually, when you talking to somebody like you, uh, you, you actually start thinking, oh, actually, yes, these, these are skills. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that 
probably I did well at was because Paul Ronan, incidentally, Shane's old friend, was excellent here because he advised me along the way, don't push it. Don't, you know, you can't just go walk into a room, say to Shane, great, I'm going to ask you about school today, blah, blah, blah. You know, apart from the fact that that wouldn't work, it would actually set you backwards. He would be so annoyed that it would take a while then to recover. So I think one of the skills was um, not being pushy. As as you know, I used to sit there and and it was so I had to stop myself c- continually asking because I you know apart from anything else, I was on a I was on a, a stopwatch because I live in Norwich in the UK. I don't live in Dublin, and I and I have a full time job. So. You know, I was sitting there thinking, look, you know, I'm in, I've got to get it now. Right. But but equally thinking, I can't get it now, this instant, I'm going to have to wait. So I think being patient was one of the big things. Oh, okay. That's good. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I always used to think watching, say, the Michael Parkinson show in the 70s, what could be easier than interviewing people? You just ask the questions, right? And then sit back and let them talk. But actually, as soon as you start interviewing people, you realise it's, it's it's not the asking the questions it's a process of extracting information and if people aren't prepared to to externalize it you, yeah. you ask as many questions as you like so it's, uh, it's no i think that's exasperating that's, experience it is exasperating that is the exact word and uh you know i think the other thing is because i was uh, interviewing lots of other people so i interviewed or got contributions from over 60 people for this mm-hmm. book uh, and that included his his dad his sister bandmates uh, other other celebs, you know, Sinead O'Connor. And for those interviews, without exception, they were more like a normal interview. I met the person in most cases. We sat down, we had a coffee, we had a drink. It was in a bar. It was other, and we recorded it, you know, after some polite chat at the beginning, as we are today, you know. So they were all completely no- normal kind of interviews. But with Shane, it's completely different. So often I was going from those interviews to him and then having to go back to this different mode of approach completely and I I mean I spent a lot of time just sitting there and the first time I went to Ireland I think I kind of said to myself at one point don't try and interview him on this trip you know (laughs) just just actually write off this trip uh, as as a as an introductory phase this is this is phase one introduction to Shane right and allow him to I mean apart from anything else you know I was a guest in his in his in his home and in Victoria's Mm -hmm. home very generous of them to allow me to to be there so I think that first trip was like don't interview him don't ask anything just let him think that I'm okay right now that that takes us very uh elegantly to add to your next rule which is which sort of takes us to the next level of complexity with writing about difficult people where you say don't say don't take what they say at face value and try to corroborate stories with other people who were there or can be relied on for the facts so there's this idea that even if you even if you do get them to say something there's absolutely no knowing whether it's true or not (laughs) you know they could have made something up it could could be hopelessly misremembered and there's always this problem when when drink and stronger stimulants have been taken, you know, memories can fishtail across the road at the in the, even of the most sober memory. So I imagine this is a, an absolute nightmare with a band like like the Pogues and with Shane yeah, Gowan. Definitely. I mean, Shane drinks all, all day long, um, but that's not kind of gulping down drink in a kind of um, you know haphazard way. It's just it's just a very, very gentle, you know, way of just just sip, sipping away at a glass of wine across the day. 
Uh, it's not the kind of hell raising that people might imagine having from having read tabloid headlines over the years. Um, you know, he's also um, uh, he can't move around at the minute, so you know he's he's restricted. So um, it's it is a it's it's a very very difficult um, it's a very very difficult process um, talking to somebody like that. And as you as uh, as you as you say, I mean, it's it's not taking what they say as gospel. I mean, the thing with Shane is. Um, myths have grown up around Shane's story like weeds over the years <laughs> to the point where it's actually impossible to see the original plant. I mean, it, all you can see is just this mass of weeds. And one of the things that I was hoping to do, although it might have perhaps been a bit of a fool's errand, really, was to try to uh, separate the myth from, from the fact. Mm. For example, many, many people have believed that Shane was born in Ireland. Um and this may be because he has actually told people this himself. So documentaries, even BBC documentaries, have started by saying Shane was born on the banks of the River Shannon, no, born in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. Now, there, to me, there is. I mean, Shane used to get very annoyed with me when I when he felt that I was trying to get at details. You know, why do you keep going on about details? You know? But there are certain details which I think it is absolutely critical to get right. And where the country in which somebody is born, in especially in his case, is absolutely critical to knowing the truth. So you know, uh, getting getting to that, getting to where he spent his childhood, which is another thing which has been surrounded by myth over the years, and people have got wrong all over the place. You know, it's from, it's really really important that Shane uh, to to write that Shane grew up in England because Pogue's lyrics were were written through the, the sort of prism of uh, being second-generation Irish in England. That was the mm -hmm. whole point. They could never have come from them. So those kind of facts um, um, are really important. And so the the uh, what I did with this book was I made extra sure that where I thought something was a bit dubious, um, that I would check it with Siobhan, his sister, his dad, uh, his school teacher, his, you know, there was, you know, so I would go back to those people and try to corroborate and try to get and and sometimes I think it's also important to say that when you at the end of the day the book was about Shane not those people and that was something I also tried to keep hold of throughout the writing of it was this isn't about them it's not about Sinead O'Connor it's not about Siobhan it's about Shane so give him his voice let him uh, say what he has to say but actually if there's something where it needs corroboration then have the alternative voice which says actually you know, I think this. Right. Well, that's your. That's actually another your your next rule, isn't it? You, you say uh, when writing about them, let them have their voice as much as possible, as the book is about them, and where appropriate, leave the reader to make them their own mind up. You know, where, where did you, where with Shane did you find this most to be the case? You know, the, perhaps you wanted to push in a particular direction, but you just had to take your take your hands off a little bit. Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, I suppose where he's perhaps talking about um, his his own addictions, uh, mm -hmm. his his behaviour around drugs. Um, I mean, the book has been very honest, um, and uh, a lot of reviewers have commented on on this. In fact, you know, sort of unanimously about how honest it is. Although it's a you know pretty much an authorised book, um, it, it's it is very honest about his behaviour post sort of ninety the late nineties. And um, I think that's a, an area where, <clears throat> you know, I was happy to to, to, to get 
uh, what Shane actually has to say about some of these incidents that took place, people dying in his flat, um, you know, quite serious stuff, um, and get into his head and let and hear what he had to say about those things. And then, you know, let the readers decide what they thought about that behaviour, what they thought about the way certain episodes were dealt with, you know. And were you able to to get him to reflect at all on his chaotic nature or sort of where it came from, perhaps, you know, because even though he's now, you now paint this picture of him today as a very, you know, he's very much a quiet man. He chooses to get around by wheelchair, spends his life in front of the television. Uh, but in the past, obviously, you know, stays in mental hospitals. He's sabotaged some great opportunities in his career. Uh, no one in music can have spent more time in A&E than, uh, than Shane McGowan. Did he, did he ever speak on what made what he thought made him this sort of fireball of self-destruction? I, I think probably no. I mean, I think that's that's something that's that's quite hard to get out of him. Um, and you know, Jerry O'Ball, his his sort of de facto manager, said says that he lives in his head, um, and I think that's quite a good description of uh, of Shane. Uh, you know, he doesn't really uh, voice those those kind of thoughts uh, very easily. Uh, what he thinks about some of that stuff, I think he's he's pretty much kind of kept to, to himself, really. Um, I mean, he talks about. And, and in, in fact, in the Crock of Gold documentary made by Julian Temple, he pretty much says that at one point, if somebody gave him some heroin, you know, he would take it straight away. He still says that, you know, after everything, you know, that's happened to him and the physical state that he's now in, he still says if someone gave him a load of heroin, he would just immediately take it. And I think, you know, my experience of him is that um, there is he is an addict. Um, there, there is absolutely no question that, of that. I think initially... Um, when the Pogues came to prominence, he was very much in the, uh, I think Brendan Bean was very much a kind of muse. You know, he uh, he had a picture of Brendan Bean on his wall in the flat in Cromer Street, um, which was just literally a sea of bottles and cigarette ends and all the rest of it. And uh, so definitely he was hugely influenced by him. And I think there is that, I think Victoria possibly may have been quoted in the book as saying, you know, he he kind of sees... People who can't take their drink. It's not Irish, you know. Right. You've got to be able to hold your drink. So I think there is that kind of old, fa- at the beginning, old-fashioned view. And I think with Shane, it just became absolutely entrenched as an addiction. There is this other side of his character, though, that you bring out um, very well in the book that gets sort of gets no mention as part of the wild man myth, but just how intelligent and well-read he is. And that's been the case, you know, ever since he was at school, a truly noteworthy English student how does that sort of manifest itself in or, or did it manifest itself in your dealings and conversations yeah. with him <clears throat> I mean whenever you talk to Shane it's 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 incredible how I mean even now with his memory is, is is astonishing very very bright knows about everything you know I remember one night talking about ghost stories or something which is a big, a big love of mine he knows all about that in fact he knows more about it than a lot more about it than I do you talk about sport he knows about that um, politics, you know, he, you know, it, history, brilliant on history. I mean, you know, so y- you could get a room, you could put a load of academics in a room with him and he would be able to hold his own with them in just the same way as you could stick him in a pub in the middle of Tipperary and he'd hold his own with, with, with everyone there. Any company he's comfortable in, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, and it does. So it manifests itself in, in just general conversation and, and his sheer knowledge uh, of, 
uh, of of history. He's a, a man of very few words, I should say. So sometimes these these interventions are are very very brief. Right. Just when you think that he's asleep, all of a sudden this voice will pop up, and you'll think, and he'll say something very pertinent to what to, to the discussion. <laughs> okay, so this is this is great. So we've got your your rules so far are that uh, you shouldn't attempt to interview them. So you've you've made your, you, you spend entire weekends in his company without recording anything. You've then got to this level of uh, you're getting some stories out and you corroborate them elsewhere. Uh, you let them have your own voice. Let them have their own voice. But then there's this next stage, which is yet another potential sort of. Uh, pit lined with uh, sticks that you could step into at any moment. You say, uh, when they do tell you stories and are happily reminiscing, let them speak and don't try and interrupt and ask for details. You say, I learned this the hard way. Please explain. Yeah, I mean, several times Shane, uh, you know, got got, got angry because he, he said, you know, uh, I was asking for details. You know, he told me, yes, I, I'd rather be interviewed by the police. Well, this is what I was told. Um, you know, he, he, he'd, and it's quite, um, when he reacts in this way, if you don't know him that well, you would think, God, he's really angry. I mean, it sounds like he's really angry. Actually, he isn't. It's just the way he speaks. Um, his voice goes up quite quickly. Um, and it sounds like he's a lot angrier with you than he actually is. So that's something I kind of learned as a, as a kind of reassurance. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it was where it is. Sometimes it's important to place an incident, a great anecdote somewhere, because you think, well, what, which school was this at? And that's quite important. Mm -hmm. This is where he, his, his anecdotes are not strong on detail. So you're thinking, you're thinking, this is a great story for the book, but where did it happen? <laughs> what age was he? I mean, you're not looking for an exact date because no one cares about that and it doesn't matter. But what does matter is, what, was he 15 or was he nine? You know, th this is quite important. Just, right. just place it somewhere. And then he, he would get very irascible uh, when you're trying to pin down those kind of details. So I kind of learned that maybe it's better to just let him keep going don't ask about details. And in some cases, he was probably right, actually. I probably was looking for too much detail. And you can always check those details with other people without running the risk of getting attacked by him. Right. I mean, this must be, this must go kind of completely against everything you believe as a, as a crime journalist, no? where you're, you're, you're sort of almost sacred obligation is to pin down facts and details and, you know, second source, yeah. everything. You can't go on, you know, print rumours and, yeah. uh, you know, half-truths and the rest of it. you got to. So did you find yourself having to constantly bite your tongue? Or? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're absolutely right. Instinct tells you, as a, as a former journalist, you, that's exactly what you're after. You, you're, you're, you're taught to kind of, um, you know, laser in on the facts, especially around mm. crime with crime particularly, what time did the incident happen is absolutely, you know, critical. Where did it happen? Who saw it? And so on and so forth. These things are, are vitally important. I've used to cover court cases. Massively important you get it right because, you know, you're, you're, you're covering a legal process. And if you get it wrong, um, you know, that's that's a lot of trouble that the newspaper is in mm -hmm. and, and, and you as well. So, um, Having been taught for two decades that you, you absolutely have to get everything spot on, 
than interviewing somebody who doesn't give a single, you know, monkeys about what 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 when something happened or or anything at all. Um, you know, it, it's yes, you have to bite your tongue and be patient. Uh, and uh, Shane is, is 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 very very tricky to interview. Julian Temple, who did the documentary, as I always already mentioned, Crock of Gold film. Um, I think it was Shane that actually suggested it. And he, he thought it'd be a good idea for Julian Temple to do the film. Julian Temple was actually a bit reluctant at first, but eventually said, okay, I'll do it. At which point Shane said, I'm not going to be interviewed. <laughs> so Julian Temple then had to make a film, effectively not really interviewing Shane at all, and trying to get um, trying to find footage from, from, from the past. Right. Well, there's this fantastic technique that you use to kind of do the same thing, I think, at the beginning. There's this long section at the beginning of the book where the family assembles at the, the, the sort of ancestral McGowan home in Tipperary, where it very, very much feels as though you are sitting in on a very sort of intimate family gathering, but you, you don't really have speaking privileges. How, so it, and, but through that, you introduce, you know, his childhood, his family relationships, the kind of, you know, background that he's from. How did you manage to pull that off? Um, I think Siobhan um, McGowan, his sister, was absolutely instrumental in this book. Without her, I, I actually couldn't have, couldn't have really done well. Certainly, couldn't have done the book that I that I eventually produced. Um, I mean, it would have been a much much less of a book without her. Um, and she um, very kindly uh, assembled those those people together in what is an incredible. I can't stress what, what an incredible place the Commons is. Carney Commons, which is where Shane uh, went on his childhood. Sort of pilgrimages uh, over from over from England, and um, you know he saw this as a kind of idyllic place. He romanticised this place enormously, um, and um, so she assembled uh, his relatives, many of his relatives who live in Ireland, together there. And again, I mean, it was just a question of listening to to them, but also they're not used to being interviewed. I don't think any of those people had really been interviewed before. They were some aunts and some cousins. Mm -hmm. I've never seen them quoted anywhere before. So I think, again, these are people who are not used to being interviewed. So I think there it was a question of uh, asking them the right questions to, to, to try to, to get them to dredge back things that they might not have thought were important or actually really helpful to illustrate what he was like as a child. OK. Now, this fifth rule is very much one of, uh, you know, it, it feels like a, a, a plea for it just eternal patience you say don't be disappointed if you don't get anything usable and be prepared to forgo sleep go with the flows it is more important to get their trust than harangue them for information they don't want to give were you i wanted to ask about this were you expected to kind of keep up with the drinking as well during all this uh, this process of no sleep uh, you know i can imagine it can just be quite exhausting the whole yeah, uh, you know the pro the, the process you went through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not not expected to keep up with it, but I mean, you know, when when you're there, Shane is incredibly generous. I have to say, I mean, you know, if you were out in a in a bar with him, he would cover everything. That's just normal. You know, he's a very very generous person. Generous with his time, generous with his money for sure. Um, and you know, whenever you go into the flat, you know, he he'll say, oh, you know, get yourself a drink. You know, so you know, it's it's not it's not that he's sitting there, you know, kind of um carefully uh keeping keeping a bottle to himself nothing like that you know so everyone's there um you know having a glass with him uh but yes i mean when it goes on for hours and hours and hours and you are just sitting there uh and you know drinking wine 
and uh, and 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 ha- having a chat with him. It, it is exhausting. I remember there was one evening when I was about to go to bed, probably needing sleep. I should think at this point, and this this might have been eleven o'clock, quite early. And Shane sort of said, "Oh, you know, can you make me a cup of tea?" So I said, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." So I made made him a cup of tea, and uh, then I kind of just got the impression I don't I don't think anyone else was around. I thought, look, this this might be an opportunity here. You know, uh, he's not distracted by other people here. So I went and got the tape recorder back out again, having already kind of brushed my teeth and was all ready to go to bed and thought, I'm going to have to push through for another hour or so. Right. And I did end up, you know, recording some some stuff there. So sometimes, yeah, you have to kind of push through the exhaustion uh, and also just be prepared. You know, I mean, you're never going to interview him in the morning because he's in bed. You know, you're not, you're talking about someone who won't, you know, I mean, even mid afternoon, you'd you'd be struggling to get anything, uh, anything out of him. So really you're talking about the, the evening and middle of the night are the best times to to get anything out of him. Right. You you do mention a number of times in the book, just how generous he is, you know, that uh, I remember there's a bit where he goes into a pub and uh, the the new barmaid is, is kind of surprised that he doesn't, he doesn't pay for his drink straight away because his habit is to pay right at the end with a massive tip. Uh, And I think he orders something like a cider, a a wine, uh, a cup of coffee and a pint of Guinness for himself. And then asks, you know, what does it, what does everybody else want? So this is, orders this extraordinary sort of cocktail of beverages. Um, Uh, in, and then presumably would be, would quite happily, you know, if if uh, somebody else wanted to have four drinks for themselves, he would yeah. he would quite happily stand Absolutely. up there. But yeah. uh, but then at the same time, he can be really difficult. Now, so there's this bit, bit where he's, he's so elusive. You know, you mentioned when Johnny Depp is keen to meet him, and he can he completely gives him the cold shoulder. And um, so he can switch from being yeah. outstanding company to just arctic in his well, uh, unwelcome. <laughs> you know, which I think that's, that's a really interesting point, and and it makes me. I keep thinking about this when when uh, th- this comes up, and um, it's it, there seems to be something. I think there's been enough incidences of this to for it for, for there to be something in it. For example, Tom Waits was um, uh, was in New York when the Pogues were playing over there, and there was the opportunity for the Pogues to go out for the evening and spend the evening in Tom Waits' company in a bar. Can you imagine if you're awake, man? It's like, you know, dream come true. Yes. Shame didn't go. Then Bob Dylan invites the Pogues to play six dates with, uh, across uh, in, a different, in the West Coast of America. Shane, in my opinion, deliberately gets so wasted. They, they, they put him in the, the hotel at the airport specifically so it would be easier to get him on a plane didn't work still didn't make it still didn't make it because he deliberately um uh, he 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 sought to sabotage that that opportunity by getting so wasted he knew that they wouldn't let him on the plane which of course they didn't he then claimed that he tried to get on other flights but i interviewed his landlady who said basically he just arrived back at her flat she opened the door he fell flat on his face in her hallway laughing and and, and and then basically spent the next few days saying, don't answer the phone, don't answer the door, you know, where obviously people were ringing saying, get him on a flight now. Right. They couldn't. And I think, so you mentioned the other one there, uh, and I think again, you know, with Johnny Depp, there seems to be this thing with very, very famous people. He doesn't seem to want to sort of engage, which is interesting. 
And did you learn anything, Richard, from this experience that has kind of stood you in good stead for taking on future challenges? Or, or was Shane McGowan such a one-off that you almost had to kind of create, craft a bespoke interview method to, to cope with his approach to life? Definitely that. I mean, uh, yeah, a bespoke process for sure. I mean, I don't think you, I don't think it would be possible to write about somebody in such with with such difficult interviewing conditions. Um, you know, interviewing someone at three o'clock in the morning, television blaring, things going on in the room. It may not go into here. Distractions, other people's loud voices, and then someone who doesn't like being interviewed. I mean, right. you know, I don't. I don't think you could create a, a more difficult environment. Um, like I say, it wasn't hostile as such, but uh, in terms of actually practic the practicalities of recording in that in in that environment were, were incredibly difficult. I think maybe one of the things that is that I've learned from this is probably when I do another book, it will be about somebody who's a lot easier to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think anybody who's had to transcribe even five minutes of tape in, you know, normal circumstances starts to think, uh, you know, maybe I should consider another profession. But so the idea of hours of tape with blaring television, people talking over the top, uh, it's just un I can't imagine what you went through. It must have yeah, reconfigured also, your brain. I feel and like. also another thing we haven't mentioned, which is just yet another component which makes it difficult. Shane's actually quite hard to understand when he speaks. <laughs> and you get this constant <laughs> all the time at the end of everything. So, you know, even when he is talking, sometimes it's quite hard to actually understand what he's telling you. Well, okay. So I'm going to ask you my two my two writers my two general writers questions now. Then, what? Uh, how many words should a writer write each day? What's your what's your what's your uh, your output? Your you know well, standard day's output. I would say um, probably a minimum of about a thousand. I think mm -hmm. uh, would would be a, you know. I mean, this is this book was probably something like a hundred and thirty thousand words. Right. So um, I think anything less than that, and you, you know, you know, it's going to take you a long time. Okay. My other question is, uh, I found one of the few things that writers tend to have in common is that virtually none of them actually like writing. Where do you stand on that? <laughs> um, maybe, uh, maybe because of maybe because of Shane and and the difficulties of, of recording the interviews, maybe the writing seemed like a, a little bit more enjoyable <laughs> in this, <laughs> because it was something that I actually had control over. Right, right, right. And uh, has it has it put you off writing uh, biographies for good? No, no, not not at all. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm very happy in the end with, with, I'm, I've been very happy in the end with, with what I produced here. I'm not somebody that generally likes Anything that I do, I always think I'm always looking at the negative, um, thinking, look, always looking at it, thinking it could have been better if I mm -hmm. wish I had done this, wish I'd spoken to that person. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm always a bit glass half empty. But actually, in this instance, I think given given the difficulties of, of, of getting information from Shane, as we've as we've talked about, I think what I produced in the end, um, what I did manage to get from him was was pretty good actually in a lot of instances and also i was really happy with the other people that i spoke to especially people like his his teacher who, who's since passed away who's who was about 90 years old when i when i went to see him and who had kept all of shane's school books and essays and stuff 
Obviously, right. without any, he couldn't possibly have known that Shane would become famous, and yet he'd kept these and hadn't kept them from any other students. So I think, you know, I, I do feel that the hard work paid off. And has word filtered back from the uh, McGowan clan as to whether he likes it or not? I, I don't, I, I would be pretty confident that he hasn't read it. I don't think I don't think Victoria or Shane have read it. If they have, I haven't been told that. Um, I would imagine that he probably doesn't like it very much. Um, he doesn't really like being written about, as we've as we've already discussed. Doesn't like being interviewed. Um, it wasn't something that he wanted, uh, although he wasn't against the idea. So I I, I would um, I haven't really heard anything specifically, but I would imagine that he probably wouldn't like it. Brilliant. Well, Richard, it's a, it's a, whether he likes it or not, it's a phenomenal book about a truly extraordinary subject. I think you've done a tremendous job and I urge everybody to read it immediately. Well done. And thank you for talking to me today. Thanks so much. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. 